uh, today, Bobby, Brother Bobby continues the study of the seven churches of Asia. Oh, I got to do a video first? All right. continues to study with the seven churches of Asia. We're up to church number three, Pergama. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 12 through 17 says, And to the church, and to the angel of the church in Pergama, write, These things saith he, who hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's throne is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling stone before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against thee with the sword of my mouth. He that hath a ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. To him that overcometh, will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in that stone a new name written, which no one knoweth except he to who receiveth it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day, the opportunity to be in your house. Dear God, teach us your word, show us your truth. Speak through Bobby now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
Amen. Aren't you thankful for the men and women who have led us this morning to the throne of grace? You know, before we ever arrived today, there have been people who have been preparing and praying that you and I would encounter the presence of the living God. And uh, Michael, the praise team, the band behind us, the unsung heroes of the sound booth up there, and the, the men and women from week to week who have been up here who have memorized the Word of God and who have shared that with you, who have braved this stage, braved these lights, and frankly braved you, right? We ought to, I think it would be appropriate right now, to put our hands together, together and give glory to God for the people that He is using in our lives this morning. So, if you have your Bible with you or in the pew in front of you, I want to invite you to get one, open it up to the book of Revelation, which is the last book of the Bible, and once you make it there, find chapter 2 and go down the page until you find verse 12, and we're going to start there just shortly, and then while you're at it, go ahead and pull out that sermon guide that's tucked away in your bulletin and follow along with us as we dive in to talk about the church that is characterized by compromise. Um, Today we're going to pick back up in our series, as Kevin just announced, uh, in the seven letters to the churches of Asia. Jesus has a word via letters that he has written to seven very real churches in history that has direct implication for modern-day First Baptist Church in Valonia, Arkansas. So remember, the blessing that is mentioned for us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, where Jesus says, Blessed is he who reads... And those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. So this is very important. We would do well to pay attention to Jesus because, right, Jesus doesn't send junk mail. Amen? All right. I don't think I heard enough amens on that one, but Jesus doesn't send us junk mail. He has a very real word for us today. So a brief recap would be needed now as we pick back up in this series. And the first letter we looked at was written to the church at Ephesus who we learned were doing a lot of amazing things for the Lord, but they had left out one important aspect of those amazing things, and it was the Lord Jesus himself. The Bible says, Jesus says, I have this one thing against you, that you have left your first love. And then last week, we moved into the letters of the church at Smyrna, that we didn't see them leave their first love. We actually saw a suffering church who was willing to die for love. And then this week, we pick up with the church in Pergamum, letter number three, And we're going to see that they had a great testimony of being a real faithful witness for Christ in a hostile city. But let me summarize their great error with a story. It's a story of Greek mythology. Some would say it's based in actual history. Who knows? But it begins with Paris of Troy, who abducted Queen Helen, who was the the wife of King uh, Menelaus of Sparta. Anybody know what story I'm talking about? Enraged Menelaus called upon all the men, all the kings of the Greek territories to rally together to defend her honor because they had all pledged an allegiance that they would defend her if she were ever to be insulted. And so thus a fleet of a thousand ships were launched at the city of Troy, which was born the old saying, the face that could launch a thousand ships because she was known as a woman of extraordinary and rare beauty. So after ten years of fighting... The Greeks were camped outside of the city of Troy, still unable to penetrate their walls. 
And so they come up with a plan. They had one secret weapon, and it was Odysseus, who was a king, but also a cunning military commander from Ithaca. Now, Odysseus had the the plan that they would build this large wooden structure that, that we may be familiar with, known as the Trojan Horse which was a wooden, hollow, horse-shaped structure that would be rolled up in front of the city gates of Troy, and it would be filled with a group of Greek fighters. Okay, And so the plan was that they would do this at night, and then they would pretend to retreat from the city of Troy, and it would just appear as a departing gift of their defeat. Well, the the Trojans took the bait, and that night they they rolled it in. They were celebrating, and while the the Greek soldiers slowly worked their way out, killed the guards, they opened the city gates, let the Greek army come in, they overtook the city, and the Trojans were defeated. Now the question is, what does this have to do with our Lord's letter for his church in Pergamum today? Well, the church in Pergamum's greatest danger wasn't the threat from the outside, but it was from the spiritual Trojan horse on the inside of the church, and the name of that Trojan horse was Compromise. Compromise. And if the church didn't do something about it, they were in danger of meeting a brand new enemy, a brand new enemy, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I promise you they didn't want in on that action because Hebrews 10.31 tells us it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Right out of the gate, we see that Christ is characterized by judgment because Jesus has sobering words here for the church in Pergamum this morning. Verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. So the first thing we're going to see right here in this moment is that Jesus, the judgment of Jesus is true. That's your first point for this morning. The judgment of Jesus is true. Both in John's vision of Jesus Back in chapter 1 that we saw, and then going ahead towards the end of the book in chapter 19, we see the imagery being painted that Jesus is the one that out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword with which would be used to strike down the nations. And so the imagery we're getting here is one of judgment that the, the church in Pergamum is hearing. So let me be, be clear, when we hear about Jesus and out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, Jesus is no pirate swinging into his church with a sword between his teeth. No, what's going on here is that John is describing for you and I, the mighty Lord of the church, who is the king of the universe, speaking his word with great power and authority. His word is trustworthy and true. It is inerrant and infallible, meaning it's always true, never false. It is the trustworthy and true, inerrant and infallible, living word of God. And right out of the gate, this letter gets real. With anyone that has an ear to hear, they should listen up and heed the things which are written according to chapter 1. So the judgment of Jesus is true. Second, the judgment of Jesus is thorough. The judgment of Jesus is thorough, and I could think of no better verse than Hebrews chapter 4, 12 and 13 that could really paint this picture for us. All right, Hebrews chapter 4, 12 and 13 says, The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now listen, here's some thorough words. Nothing. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Another thorough word. Everything will be uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The judgment of Jesus is thorough. This is clearly a threatening image the Lord paints for us. Danny Aiken says, Rome might wield the sword on earth, 
But the glorified Christ wielded a mightier sword from heaven. This is the sword the church should fear. This is the sword we should revere, he says. The judgment of Jesus is true and thorough. Then we see that there's a little good before the bad when Jesus commends the church next for their faithfulness. So look, look at with me at verse 13. I know. Let's say it again. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Notice just for a moment there, before we really get into our point, that Jesus says those two words, I know. This is real important, and maybe somebody needs to hear this this morning, but Jesus knows. He's aware of your situation that you're going on right that's going on in your life right now. Maybe when nobody else understands, Jesus knows. When nobody else gets it, Jesus does. He is there. He understands. They may not understand what you go through, but Jesus is intimately aware of every circumstance. This is something that early church fathers termed as quorum Deo, before the face of God, that you and I, we live continually before the face of God. You should take time to look at each of the seven letters once you get home today and take a pen and just underline each time after Jesus greets them, He starts with the words, I know, each and every time, to remind us that we constantly live before the face of God, and he understands every circumstance that we're in. Jesus, speaking of the church at Pergamum, he knows their zip code, and he knows that they're not serving Chick-fil-A for lunch, right? It says that at the beginning of the verse, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And then he caps it off again at the end of the verse with the phrase, where Satan dwells. And so we know that this is a shady place. And in spite of the bad situation that Pergamum finds themselves in, Jesus sees faithfulness in their midst. And he knows about it. He, he wants to point it out. And it leads us to this point. We, you and I, here today, 21st century First Baptist Church, we must be faithful where we live. We must be faithful where we live. So let's just kind of turn it to the History Channel for a moment. I want to give you a little Wikipedia session on Pergamum, okay? Pergamum was the official capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. It was sort of the capital hill politically. But also they, had, they were known medically. They were kind of like the Mayo Clinic of the day. Okay? We're going to talk a little bit about that here in just a moment. I'll come back to that point. But Pergamum was also a center for culture and learning. Innovators gathered there. Anybody ever heard of parchment? Yeah, it began in Pergamum. It began right there and started there, and it filled up their library. And speaking of their library, it was impressive. They boasted of over 200,000 handwritten volumes in Pergamum, only second to the renowned library that you've, you've probably heard of in Alexandria, Egypt. Matter of fact, history tells us that Mark Antony, who loved Cleopatra, he gave the library of Pergamum as a gift to the queen in Egypt later on. But as impressive as all of that seemed on the surface, politically, medically, culturally, the learning center, all that, as impressive as all that seemed on the surface, their reality was a far cry from Jesus' reality. If we call Las Vegas Sin City, Jesus would call Pergamum Satan City. The truth is that the city was filled with worship and devotion to pagan little g-gods. Pagan little g-gods. One of those little g-gods was called Asclepios. And this was the little g-god of medicine and healing. Now, now Asclepios was a, a false god, a pagan god, and it's, his worshipers called him Savior. Okay? 
Asclepios was symbolized by the snake, and he held a rod known as the rod of Asclepios. You may be familiar with it. This rod is used as the crescent or the symbol on the side of our ambulances today. And we talk about healing. We see this rod of Asclepios with the serpent entangled around it. It's also featured on the front of the World Health Organization flag. Worshippers would gather in the temple of Asclepios. And they would lay down on the floor, sometimes go to sleep, in hopes that slithering snakes that freely roamed the temple would touch their body and give them healing. Now just raise your hand and be real for a moment if that just makes you squirm in the pew a little bit. Sounds like a a scene right out of Indiana Jones, right? There's a variety of reasons the Lord may have called this Satan's throne. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was... Maybe it was the fact that there was, this was one of the hotbeds for emperor worship, like the Christians in Smyrna faced there. Uh, they, the Christians here were targeted for their refusal to worship Caesar as Lord. But Jesus praised them for this. He said, you hold fast my name and did not deny me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed. So in the place where Satan dwells, Jesus says, these people remained faithful and would proclaim Jesus is Lord rather than Caesar is Lord despite the coming consequences. So like them, we must be faithful where we live. And next, we must be faithful in our witness. We must be faithful in our witness. Now, we don't know much about Antipas. History doesn't really remember much about him, tell us much about him. Some believe he may have been the pastor. But Tradition states that Antipas failed to say Caesar is Lord and only would proclaim Christ Jesus. And he stood before his accusers one day and they said to him, Antipas, the whole world is against you. And Antipas' reply was, well, then Antipas is against the whole world. And as a consequence to Antipas' faithfulness to Jesus Christ, they had a bronze bull that was hollow, and they put Antipas's body in that and built a bonfire underneath so that when the brass bull would heat up, they literally roasted him alive for his faithfulness to Jesus. Jesus calls Antipas my faithful witness, my, my witness, my faithful one. And, and by doing that, he really bestows upon, Christ, uh, upon Antipas a great honor. And why do I say this? Is because if you go back in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, The Father is speaking, and he calls Jesus my faithful witness. And now Jesus is speaking of Antipas as my witness, my faithful one. In other words, Christ was God's faithful witness unto death, and Antipas was Jesus' faithful witness unto death. The Son honored his father in death, and Antipas honored the Son in death. History may have forgotten about Antipas, but remember, Jesus says, I know. He doesn't forget. He knows what we're going through. In our postmodern culture, it's more and more popular to accept that all truths are equal and that there can be many gods and many pathways to heaven. But we must remain narrow-minded on this church because Jesus never gave us one inch to budge on the issue. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And then Psalm 62.6, he only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold, I shall not 
be shaking. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Can we get an amen somebody, right? Jesus is Lord. We must be faithful where we live and faithful in our witness. And next, we see the church is condemned for their compromise. Verse 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, and to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So also you have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So although there were some who were there ready to and willing to lay down their lives for Jesus, there was some serious compromise going on in the church here. And Jesus confronts two areas of compromise that we're going to see in our next two points. And that's in morality and theology. Morality and theology. First, we must not compromise our morality. Now, Jesus begins by pointing the church to the familiar story of Balaam in the Old Testament, Numbers chapters 22 through 25. If you have some time, you may remember Balaam as the Old Testament false prophet for hire who had a donkey speak to him at one point. Now the story goes, and Jesus is relating this to the churches, to their path of error, of compromise, is that King Balak of the Moabites had hired Balaam, the false prophet for hire, okay? He had hired him to come in and to curse the Israelites. Now, Balak was concerned because what he had saw happened to the Amorites during that time, and he wanted them to be cursed, to make them ineffective, to compromise them, and so... Every time Balaam, three times, tried to open his mouth to speak a curse upon the people of Israel, God supernaturally made his mouth work in only a way that God can, and he only spoke a blessing. And out of frustration, he devised another plan, a plan to compromise the people of Israel. So he instructs, as Jesus tells us here, by teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel and do two things, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Now, the phrase stumbling block here may uh, be something familiar that some men of Valonia could relate to. When we talk about fishing, all right, so stumbling block is actually a, a picture of a snare. And you could think of it when you're hunting, uh, somebody hunting bears and set a trap. But we could also look at it sort of like a fishing lure. And every good seasoned fisherman around here knows, I don't, but every good seasoned fisherman in Valonia knows that the right lure for the right fishing hole is a necessity, right? And so, so Balaam understood that he needed the right lure to give King Balak to put before the people of Israel to cause them to compromise. Now, it says that he convinced Balak to use Moabite women to lure them in their flesh into the behavior of the godless world around them and the two things of sexual immorality— and idolatry, and they always go hand in hand, especially sexual morality. You see, all through the Bible, sexual morality would lead them to worshiping pagan gods of the cultures around them. Balaam's plan was to weaken Israel through compromise. It made an impact. God judges his people and kills 24,000 of them, including some of the leaders, and he went through drastic steps such as that to stop the slippery slope that they were in and falling into immorality and idolatry. It appears that the Pergamum church was too soft on church membership. They were willing to take in just about anybody, and they were very relaxed when it came to the idea of church discipline and dealing with the issues and confronting sin in the church. Maybe the pressures of Satan City was too much for many of them. It's even likely, when we talk about this and what Jesus might be referring to, 
is that considering that Pergamum was filled with temples to false gods where pagan rituals took place. And remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago in these temples. You would have thousands of priests and priestesses who served as temple prostitutes. And what we probably have here is men of the church, perhaps women, who are engaging in these pagan festivities and sexual immorality in them. All right? And that this is coming into the church of Jesus Christ. We too must guard ourselves because, look, this was no place for them to be in their day, and it certainly isn't for us today. This compromising cannot happen in the church of Jesus Christ. Any form of sexual immorality, pornography, has invaded the church. We are called to be holy, to be set apart, to be different, to be distinct, to be other. To be in the world and not of the world. And as 1 Peter 2.9 says, for us to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. Out of darkness into his marvelous light. And how can we do that when our very lives are muddying the gospel of Jesus? We cannot and we must not compromise our morality for the sake of the gospel. Because when we do that, we, it loses its beauty. It loses its appeal. We can't do it for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God. They're all at stake. B, we must not compromise our theology. We must not compromise our theology. And this is just a little simple moment for me to do a plug and invite you back tonight at 6 o'clock where Matthew Sisson is going to pick back up where he's talking about the importance of theology, where he's stated to us that the worship of the church cannot rise higher than its theology. So, so our understanding of theology, the study of God and knowing the person of Christ is going to impact, has a direct impact on our personal worship and our corporate worship. We cannot compromise our theology. Jesus stated, so you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicol- Nicolaitans. He uses those three words, so you also, or maybe in your translation, in the same way. And these phrases are introducing to us, that, or telling us that the heresy of the Balaamites were also being introduced by the Nicolaitans in the church in their day. So it's just a very similar thing going on where the Nicolaitans, they're tolerating what the Nicolaitans are doing and it's introducing immorality and sexual, sexual morality and idolatry into the church of the Lord Jesus. Now, in Acts 21, in verse 25, they were trying to deal with the growing uh, issue. It was a good issue, but the growing number of Gentiles coming into the church that was primarily Jewish of the day and trying to sort out what the expectation of Gentile Christians were once they got saved. Did they have to be uh, circumcised like the Jews? You know, They had to kind of sort this out. And the Bible tells us that they had wrote a letter to deal with this, and it says this in Acts 21-25, as for the Gentile believers... We have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, there's your idolatry, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. And so right off the bat, this issue was addressed. And now this issue is being introduced back into the church by false teachers, and they are accepting it. So the teaching of the Nicolaitans, like Balaam, held to a liberal theology, and they disregarded the clear instructions set forth by the apostles. The question then must be asked of you and I. Are we being shaped more by the world around us or by the Word? Are we being shaped more by the world than by the Word? Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed 
to the pattern of this world. And I like to think of that like Plato. And you and I are like Plato. And are we put into the hands of the world and allowing ourselves to be molded into the image of the world by the things that we are attracted to and spend time doing and are consumed with? But the Bible says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. And how do we do that? By the renewing of our mind. How's our mind renewed? By being transformed by the Word of God. Being transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we will know what God's good and perfect will is. Are we being shaped more by the world around us or by the Word? Next question, are we getting into the Word or is the Word getting into us? Are we getting into the Word or is the Word getting into us? Uh, Psalm 119.11, I've hidden your Word or I have treasured your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so that verse shows us there's a very direct connection in, the God, in putting God's word in our heart and our lives as we live in sanctification, as we live and pursue holiness. If we want to pursue holiness, we've got to get the word in us to let the word of Christ dwell within us richly, as it says in the book of Colossians. So it's very important. Are we getting in the Word? Is the Word getting into us as we've seen people so beautifully illustrate, men and women from different generations from week to week, getting up here and reciting God's Word to us? Listen, being a friend of the world never, ever wins the world to Jesus. It only compromises us. It only dilutes the message of the gospel. James chapter 4, verse 4 has a very stern warning for believers who think it's okay to compromise who thinks it's okay, well, where sin abounds, grace abounds more, right? And so the more I sin, the more grace abounds. Grace doesn't give us a license to sin. And James 4.4 is that stern warning to us when he begins with the word adulteresses. Adulteresses, in the other words, we are the bride of Christ, and if we have walked away like Hosea's wife Gomer did and played the prostitute away from our God and Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then we are seen as adulteresses, adulteresses feeding, uh, 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 cheating on He who has been faithful to us, who has never left us nor forsaken us, but we've just clearly turned our backs on Him. And James says, adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? It means it puts us at odds with our own God and Savior. So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. It's a sad day when the church herself becomes the enemy of God. When God has to make war with the sword of His own mouth against His beloved people. Now, yesterday, many of us witnessed a very beautiful wedding, right? The the wedding of Levi and Kelsey Otts. It was just a wonderful moment that we got to see this beautiful, God-given picture painted for us of Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. Now, Pergamum, in its original language, means this, thoroughly married. Thoroughly married. So what's taking place here is that the church in Pergamum has become thoroughly married to the world in their compromise. Number four, the church has corrected them with a warning. Therefore repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war with them with the sword of my mouth. First we see that Christ warns us to repent. Christ warns us to repent. So back in January, I decided that I was going to start drinking more water and uh, trying to just control my portions of eating and 
and try to do 10,000 steps a day at least. And sometimes you win, sometimes you lose some, right? But, but all in all, I tried to stay pretty consistent with that. But then I ran into kind of a bittersweet problem through that because a lot of my clothes didn't fit me anymore. And what I ran into was a problem that my shirts, my pants, my church suits even were one and two sizes too small. And so then I had the, the painstaking reality that I had to spend lots of money just trying to get brand new clothes for the, for my, to live, to function, unless I didn't want to look like, you know, back old Bobby days, gangster days, right? And, and wear all the baggy britches to church every Sunday. Paul put it in a way that I want to kind of relate to that. Paul put it in a way I think a lot of our students here today might be able to relate to a little bit better. Um, um, Division I athletes, they, they dream of a day to enter the NFL draft to get on the winning team, right? Never the Cleveland Browns, am I right? That's not what they're looking to do. <laughs> Colossians 3, Paul mentions taking off the old clothes. Think of it like the old jersey taking off the old clothes and its evil practices and putting on the new jersey, the new clothes, which is being renewed in the image of its creator. Some of us may be compromising and looking more like the world today than like the word. But the solution this morning is to repent, to turn a new direction. You're going this way and you're pursuing the things of this world. You're being conformed to the pattern of this world. And we're to turn and do a new thing and follow Jesus now. That's repentance, 180 degrees. Taking off the world's jersey and putting on the winning jersey. I'm not talking about doing something big for God to show Him how sorry you are. We're not talking about a works-based religion We're not talking about behavior modification. We're talking about heart transformation today. That's what Jesus is calling his church to. Next, Christ warns us of rejection. Antipas, the faithful witness, felt the sword of Rome. The compromisers will feel the sword of Christ. And listen, church, when we talk about loving sinners, Jesus is not talking about here loving those outside the church. He's talking about his church. And so... We as the church must be big enough to love believing sinners, those who, follow, who know Jesus, but they're living in sin. We must love them enough to warn them. And if they are unrepentant, then we must exercise church discipline for the sake of the purity of the bride of Christ. Or else we will dilute our witness in this culture. We cannot tolerate the sinning believer by rolling out the red carpet down the center aisle for them and putting extra cushion in their pew. But we must gently, firmly, yet lovingly, humbly, and truthfully call them to repentance because we love them. And then lastly, the church is challenged by its reward. Christ will nourish us. Christ will nourish us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him... I will give some of the hidden manna. Question is, what's this hidden manna? What's this hidden manna? Well, during the Exodus time period where the Israelites were roaming through the wilderness, God would provide for them supernaturally by bringing this substance they called manna from heaven to feed them. I heard someone call it the proverbial Chick-fil-A of the day. Why? Because it was only open six days a week, right? I think it was Tim Hawkins wrote a song. He said, curse you Chick-fil-A because when's the one day of the week you want to go eat there? Sunday after church? Yeah, and they're closed. Uh, John 6, Jesus uh, is going to 
give us a picture of what this is all about. Because in Exodus 16, Hebrews 19, those places all tell us that, that Moses' brother Aaron, who was the first high priest, took and collected some of that manna. He tucked it away in a jar, put that inside the Ark of the Covenant that would be a, a picture or a testimony to future generations of God's faithfulness, God's provision for them during those years in the wilderness. And then Jesus sheds light on all of this in John chapter 6 when the unbelieving Israelites of the day were questioning him. They're questioning him and they ask him this, what sign then, Jesus, will you perform so that we may see it and believe you? What will you do, Jesus? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us this bread at all times. Jesus answered, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Jesus himself will nourish the church as he's calling them back to himself. He will nourish his bride. He will provide for them and those who overcome by giving them himself. He alone satisfies. He alone causes us to overcome. He alone is our provision. And he is hidden because, check this out, 1 Corinthians 1.18 He is hidden because the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are are being saved, he is the power of God. So he is hidden to the world because the blinders are on. And it takes the God of this world, the God of this universe, to open the blinders so that they can see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Next, Christ will receive us. He nourishes us and he will receive us. And he says, and I will give him... A white stone. And so really here when we talk about a white stone, this is really left for a lot of speculation. Some believe that the white stone was a stone of acquittal because it was a white stone. And in contrast, the guilty and the condemned received a black stone. Maybe it was that. It paints certainly a really beautiful picture of what will take place someday when we ultimately walk into the realization that we have truly been forgiven of our sins when we stand face to face with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen? But also, there's a picture that could be painted here with the white stone with this name written on it because the victors of the competition were also given a white stone with their name on it that was given to them as a sort of ticket to the the coming celebration, the victory celebration. Now this paints all sort of imagery for the believer too because it's Jesus who gives us entry, believer. It's Jesus who gives us the entry into the eternal victory celebration that's going to take place in heaven one day where we are going to shout, we are going to sing, even Baptists will sing, shout, and dance, right? We're going to do it all. Christ will receive us. And last, Christ will acknowledge us. And on that stone, a new name written, which no one knows but he who receives it. We don't know what that name's going to be. But what we do know is the intimacy of that name reflects God's love that he has for his children and how much he loves you. I want to go ahead and, as the thunder rumbles, invite our worship team up. And we're going to rumble ourselves here in a moment and just worship our king. And I want to invite them up and kind of close by saying a few things to you. Um, This morning... My wife and I were 
awakened at the ungodly time of 4.56 a.m. We heard a loud chirping in our room. I mean, really loud. And got up, well, it was the smoke detector in our room. And we had to get up and take the battery out and put a new battery in to make that thing stop. It was so loud. And I laid in bed. I told her, I was like, we'll see when I get back to sleep now. And I laid there and I said, God, there's something in that story for us to hear today. And I laid there and just thought about it until I drifted off back to sleep. And it's this. That some of us are here today and all we just needed was just our batteries recharged. God's trying to get our attention. He's trying to get our attention in this moment. And we just need our battery recharged by this message. We just need to, to, to need that power to continue to live faithfully for Him like His witness Antipas did. But some of us, it's not a warning that the battery's going out. The fire alarm is going off in this moment. And you need to be rescued by a Savior. Some of us in this moment may be living in the compromise of the church at Pergamum who had two things against them, their idolatry and their sexual immorality. And listen, idolatry, let's just look at the heart of that for a moment. Idolatry really is at the heart of it, people trying to have their needs satisfied by someone or something other than Jesus himself. That's idolatry. But Jesus promises to be the hidden man to say that I am enough. I alone am sufficient and satisfied. At the heart of sexual immorality is really a desire for intimacy, is it not? And Jesus says, I'll give you a white stone with a name on it that nobody else knows. That is intimacy. Jesus offers you relationship and true love. And he knows you better than you know yourself. And he invites you this morning as Christians to lay it down, to trust in him this morning and that we would all together bow the knee to King Jesus today. Whether we do it in our hearts as we stand in a moment or whether we get behind a closed door in our house this afternoon and lie on a flat on our face and just confess our compromise to him. I want to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to invite you to a time of response. Brother Brian Garrison is going to be up here. I'm going to be up here. If you'd like to come talk to somebody to pray with you today, or you'd simply just like to come before these altars or talk to somebody next to you in the pew and share with them the burden in your heart and ask, will you pray for me right now? I'd invite you to do so. This, this time is open as an invitation for you to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. We would like to invite you because today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Don't put it off. If you feel the pressing of Christ in this moment to trust in Him, I want to invite you to take care of that and do business with God today. If you'd like to join our church membership or request baptism, this is a moment you can just talk with somebody. We might need to step out back uh, in a moment and just further that conversation. But we can do something right here, right now. Let's pray. And then I'll invite us to sing. I'll invite us to sing together. Jesus paid it all. He paid the price for all of our sins. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you and we dedicate and commit this moment to you and ask that you would be glorified, that you would make this moment a pedestal higher than this stage, that the glory of Christ would be present, would be evident, and would be drawing men unto himself. 
As we sing Jesus paid it all, we want to thank you in advance for the salvation of our Savior who laid down his life so that we could be forgiven, that we could find true and everlasting freedom on this day and we could celebrate it forevermore. Jesus, you paid it all so that we would not have to come and do it over and over and over again and try to find some next and greater thing that we can do to impress you, to find your favor because Christ has already done all the work and laid it all down for us. It is finished. So we must simply trust in him this morning. We love you, Jesus. Thank you. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen.